I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 49, we read Crito, written by Plato and published in about 399 B.C. Plato was a Greek philosopher who lived during the classical period of ancient Greece. Scholars believe he was likely born in Athens between 429 and 423 BCE. Ancient sources describe him as a smart child who enjoyed wrestling. Plato became a devoted follower of the philosopher Socrates, though their precise relationship remains unknown. As an adult, Plato traveled around Egypt, Italy, Sicily, and Libya, Upon his return to Athens at around 40 years of age, he founded his academy, named for its location in the Grove of Academus. It's the first known institution of higher learning in the Western world. The academy was open until its destruction in 84 BCE. The most prominent student to attend was, of course, Aristotle. So this is a short piece. It was about about 10 pages, I think, that we, you know, the way it was formatted for us here. And um, what it's about is the end of Socrates' life. Socrates was arrested in Athens as a part of the uh, a lot of tumult in Athens after their loss to Sparta in the Peloponnesian Wars, and Socrates was charged with corrupting the minds of the youth and with impiety, and he was uh, and, and sentenced to death. So as the uh, the dialogue here begins, and the dialogue is often how Socrates. How he made his arguments because you know that's sort of the Socratic style they call it now. Instead of just a lecture, he would do a sort of a he would ask questions of people he thought were wise, and it would uh, sort of be a way of figuring out answers without necessarily showing what he thought to begin with. And so that that's that's what takes place here is his disciple Crito comes to visit him in prison, and Crito's a, a wealthy man and has a lot of friends, and he says, you know, look, I can I can break you out of here. You don't have to die tomorrow, uh, you know, for this crime, which we all think is nonsense. You know, you're not corrupting anybody. You're a philosopher teaching the youth, a good man. Let's get you out of here. Get to, get to another city. You don't. There's no reason for you to die. And what this turns into is, you know, Socrates, a, a philosopher to the end, this uh, asks Crito through a series of questions about whether we should follow the law. Basically, I mean that that is the the crux of this argument is the law superior to our own whims you know is is each man to decide whether the law is good and if so should he follow it or, or is the law above us and do we owe it our allegiance even when we think it's wrong socrates puts the question to crito says well we must examine whether i should escape and so you know during the the dialogue socrates imagines that the laws that is the laws of the of the city-state, the laws of Athens. He, he imagines the laws as a person who's speaking to them. And he says, the laws would say, are you intending to destroy us? A city would be destroyed if the verdict of its courts could be nullified by private individuals. We are destroying the law which orders that the judgments of the court should be carried out. And Socrates asked Crito, shall we say that the city wronged me? And Crito says, yes. 
But Socrates says, what if the law says, wasn't the agreement to respect the judgments that the city came to? And the laws say, what accusations do you bring us, bring against us that you tried to destroy us? Did we not bring you to birth by providing the marriage laws that joined your parents and the laws about education that encouraged them to educate you? And the laws would ask also, can you deny you are our offspring and servant? Are we on an equal footing so that whatever we do, you can do to us? And then he, get, he likens the, the laws of the city-state as similar to parents to a child. He says, the laws are like your father or your master. Uh, you have no right of retaliation against your father and your mother or your master. And in the same way, you, don't, you can't retaliate against your country, against, your, against the laws of, of your society. Instead, you need to honor your country like you honor your parents, only even more so. And you must either obey the laws or persuade the laws, that is, persuade the society to do or think otherwise. Otherwise, you need to follow the orders no matter what it leads to. These are really interesting arguments. We're going we're gonna to take these up one by one in just a minute, but we just wanted to give you a sense for the broader conversation, the, the dialogue and, and how, how Socrates is thinking about and the arguments he makes. So he also says, it is impious to use violence against one's parents. And similarly, it's much even more so to use violence against one's country. We give those who come of age an opportunity to leave, the law says. You know, if you, if you want to be a, a part of our country, then you either need to persuade us to change the laws or you need to do what we say because we have command. Right. And, and you have and, the opportunity to leave. And, and, you know, having not left, it sort of assumes, well, you must consent, right? I mean, you know, and it, you know, he makes the point that Athens, unlike many states in the ancient world, did not prevent anyone from leaving or even mm-hmm. taking their property with them when they leave. And this yeah. is sort of, this is sort of a thing we take for granted in, in the West, but it was, uh, you know, the right to emigrate was not universal by any means, but Athenians could go to Thebes or Corinth or Sparta or any of the other towns in Greece or anywhere or to any of Athens colonies in Sicily or anywhere else, you know, anywhere a ship can take them, you can go. So if you don't like these laws, why are you here is sort of what, you know, the implied bargain here. And, mm-hmm. you know, so Socrates puts these three points together. It says to cry, you know, I mean, how can we, if, if I choose to go against all of these, obviously good arguments for following the law, aren't I just, aren't I, the, you know, contributing to the destruction of a state? And further, why would any state want to take me in after I escaped? Because now I'm, I'm a criminal. I'm somebody who destroys laws. I'm somebody who mm-hmm. contributes Break to the downfall agreements. of a state. So, you know, Crito offers to take him to Thebes. Well, you know, why should Thebes accept a criminal? You know, I mean, in, in prior times, they might have accepted Socrates, the great scholar, because he would bring renown to the city. Now they're accepting somebody who breaks laws and is, you know, doing the very thing he was accused of doing, contributing to the downfall of society. I mean, it's a, it's a striking argument, I think, just because of the setting. You know, he's basically arguing for his own execution, which is, you know, that's a, somebody who's really committed to his ideals. Um, yeah, in a lot of ways, it's counterintuitive. And for Crito, he's saying to Socrates, he's like, why would you give up on your life when you can save it? You know, we both know that, that you're innocent. You know, you're helping your enemies to destroy you. You're just giving up. You're abandoning your children 
when you really have an obligation to raise them, he says, uh, either you shouldn't, you shouldn't have children or you should, he says, share the toil of their upbringing and you're taking the easy way out. This is not what a good or courageous person would do. Crado says, and Crado goes on to say, I feel ashamed on your behalf and on my behalf (laughs) when I see that all this will be blamed on cowardice that, you know, you didn't need to come to court in the first place. You know, this is, this is actually a, this dialogue of Crido is, is a three part series of what scholars refer to as the jailhouse dialogues. The first is the apology and then Crido and then Phaedo. Ultimately this ends in Socrates drinking the hemlock. So he actually commits suicide before the state can kill him. But in any event, Crido says, this is cowardice and shameful. And again, you're leaving your children and you're helping your enemies destroy you. And that, and so he breaks into these arguments and let's take these, let's take these one by one. Mm -hmm. You know, first he says, the laws are like your father and mother. And so it's kind of, we view this as a conservative um, treatise because on the one hand, uh, well, let's let's put it this way. Uh, It's kind of the community versus the individual. He says, the ancients aimed at the good of the community, while contemporary liberals aim at the right of the individual. Or, or to be more detailed about it, the ancients thought that individual citizens could be called upon to suffer for the good of the polis, which is you know the city-state, the city, while liberals hold that the individual rights should trump the good of the whole. And this is a conversation we've had with other books. Conservatives are more likely to say, we need to take into account the needs of the social order. We, we need to... F- take into account the the needs of society this is burke right the the society the whole you know the 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 history our people we need to take all those into into consideration we're not just floating autonomous individuals in every way and again this is this is where we have a little bit of tension in, in conservatism either because as well because you know we also have folks like milton friedman who were very strong for the individual but this comes to on the on the community side, and Socrates is really making a broader argument about what do we owe the city, what do we owe each other, what do we owe the the community, and he's arguing, while Crito is arguing, hey, you're innocent, you should escape. Socrates is arguing, as a broad matter, yes, but if I escape, then I'm basically betraying the society, which is which has created these laws. Yeah, it's it it really gets at the. Um the divide between the Burke side of things and the, and the John Locke side of things, you know, and this is, I mean, I, I think the ancient world was sort of a pre-individualist world. There wasn't, there wasn't really this idea of the individual as separate from the family. I mean, the people had individual ideas and did things by themselves sometimes, but it was, you know, I, I think we are so much an individualistic society on the left and the right in America that it seems weird to think that that wouldn't be, you know, somewhere in the argument, but it doesn't, it doesn't really come up that much. And neither does the idea of natural right. You know, I I think, you know, Locke talks about sort of the opposite you know, Socrates is saying here, basically that the state is your father. Whereas I think Locke would say that men created the state, you know, that the state is, that they are superior to the state and rights are superior to the state. And, you know, the state is only existing to protect rights. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no, that makes for a pretty significant carve out about what the state can do to you. 
where in in Socrates' time, it it's more about to protect the community. We have this state. Mm-hmm. We have we have Athens is, has to be strong to protect itself from other city states like Sparta, who want to invade it, dominate it, conquer it, whatever. So, the do the the point of the state there is to protect these this people. Um, and then you know, about two thousand years later we start to develop the ideas that, well, maybe the state is to protect individuals from the same sort of thing, uh, marauding armies, criminals, you know, the same sort of thing Athenians would want to be protected from, but just who the unit is that's being protected is changed by, by modern times. So I think we get this divide that, uh, at least in conservatism is still a divide that we talk about here pretty often. And, you know, people are, talk about when they are proposing laws and ideas, you know, even here in 2020 AD. So Plato's concerned with the duties that we owe to each other, let's say as a community, not, not just our, the rights that we have as individuals, Mm -hmm. but what responsibilities, what obligations do we have as part of the community? What, what obligations do we have to each other? And he starts with this argument about, we could say the state, we could say the community, or we say the polis, He's thinking in terms of, of polis, the city. You know, what, what do we owe what do we owe the polis? Socrates is going to argue that, you know, the polis stands in for our parents, for our f- father and mother, and we don't stand on equal footing with our parents. You know, I don't stand on equal footing with my children. You know, they they have they owe obligations and responsibilities and there is a you know a father child relationship between between me and my kids. So for the parent argument what we're saying is we're born into our community. We're born into this, you know, family and extended community as, you know, as Burke would describe it. And that determines our identity in, in a lot of ways. And even on the left, they would got to agree with this, that, you know, they would call it social construction of your, of your identity, but, but at least partially, you know, our identities are, are created and exist because of who we are as a child, as a, as a parent, as a brother, as a grandchild, as a neighbor, Plato's going to believes that you know the family is regarded as the model for society. In fact, in terms of linguistics, like Plato's using the word "pater" for father, and that's the root word for patriotism. And but our relationship with our parents is one of you know devotion, and we owe them. You know, my my parents raised me. That I I really didn't contribute to that. You know, maybe I had to do the dishes or mow the lawn, but you know, my parents worked and they earned money and they put food on the table and that relationship is not equal. It's a, it's one of, of obligations and, and tiered. And Socrates is, is arguing that the laws of the polis, you know, the society, our rules, our constructs, those stand in as parents, you know, we owe more to the community than it owes to us. It's already given us so much. You know, he says, provides the marriage laws that joined your parents and your education. So there's so much that the community has already provided. It's not that we owe it to the state per se, but we owe it almost to one another. As a child, Socrates is arguing that, well, I don't have the right to just slap my dad and leave. You know, I, I owe him respect and obligation. Yeah, it, it kind of put me in the mind of uh, the Jonathan Haidt book we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, Righteous Mind. 
where one of the questions he asked in determining the way different people think on left and right is, you know, what would you slap your father in the face? You know, even if nobody could see it, you know, is this something that, you know, if there was a reason for it that made sense? And I, he, he, he phrased it in such a way that to some people it might make sense, but the, you know, to a lot of people, just the mind rebels at that. Like, oh no, of course not. It's my father. You know, you can't, you, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And that, that sort of hierarchy um, kind of fights individualism, you know, because the, the purely individualist life doesn't recognize any hierarchy, whether to the law or to another human being. And, you know, Socrates is, is saying that's, that's not the way people live. You know, your father is superior to you, just like, and the state is superior to you, or this, the polis, the, the community is superior to you in the same way. You know, you mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if, you know, what you've done with your life and, you know, how successful you are, you know, you still have that filial piety that, that must be respected. Even, even before he gets into the argument of look at all the state has given you, you know, in the same way that look at all your parents has given, have given you, you know, even before you get into that implicit bargain of look, we raised you, you need to act right. It's just, you know, as soon as you're born, there is, you are born into a place in the family structure. Just like your children are born into a place in your own nuclear family structure. Yeah, that's kind of a deeply, it's in every human society. That's, I think that's what makes it kind of a, a conservative concept that, you know, we can't get away from that. The fact that we are, these roles define who we are, you know, son, mm-hmm. grandson, father, whatever it is. And that's, that's a, yeah, that's an argument we're still dealing with today. And obviously, you know, as children, we don't owe unlimited, you know, obligation to our parents. You know, for example, if you're abandoned or abused or, you know, if your your parents abuse you. But mm-hmm. even if our parents are good to us, like my parents were fantastic, the obligation isn't unlimited. You know, we can't expect, even if they're good to us, they can't ask us to you know, violate moral laws, you know, social, you know, for example, they can't tell us to steal and we, that we, and we should respect that. And, but this is the, this is the argument that Crito and Socrates is having kind of, because Crito, that's where he would come down and say, yeah, but you, you're innocent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have a right to protect your own life. You should protect your own life. And Socrates is like, well, if my parents tell me to do it. Then, you know, I really need to do it. But in, in a lot of ways, this kind of reveals a little bit of, of how Plato kind of views this, the situation because, because the part, part of Socrates' argument, or, or I'm sorry, the, the laws make the argument that they could send you off to war. You know, we have, we have the ability as the laws, as your master, as your, as your parents, we can send you off to war to die. And it's kind of like, well, to Crito, Crito says, well, you're innocent. You don't have to follow that. You don't have to do what you know what the what the laws say. And Socrates' reply is, "Well, they, you know, we need we have obligations and responsibilities that go beyond ourselves. And for example, the laws can send us off to war. They can send us off to die. So it is pretty it is pretty extreme. And this gives a sense for you know how Plato feels overall about you know about the people and how much rights individual rights they should really have." In fact, it should, we should say that in, in Athens, in the city-states, uh, in the ancient world, 
there were slaves and obviously women had no rights and even Plato himself was later sold into slavery. I mean, slavery was different because it wasn't necessarily one ethnic group over another. It was, you could be a slave of the same ethnic group, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but, um, but they didn't have rights. And even the aristocrats like Plato would have been your, your rights are, are actually trumped by the, the power of the community, the, the obligations and responsibilities that we have to the community. So it's, 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 it's pretty deep. And, and I, I've thought a lot about this from the standpoint of how far would, would I go or should I go? And, you know, Kyle, you and I were talking the other day, I, I just finished watching the Ken Burns series on the Vietnam war, which to all listeners, I highly recommend. It's probably one of the, maybe the best thing I've ever watched. It was fantastic. It's long though. And, and, you know, I, I'd only take it in pieces and it, it took a couple months to watch it. But in any event, there was one episode that, that dove deeply into the, those people who, those people who escaped to Canada in order to avoid the draft. I just had such mixed feelings about them and the, the, the documentary did a great job kind of pulling out like what's right and what's wrong about that or what's, what's uncomfortable about it. And I'm so deeply uncomfortable about it. But at the same time, I've, I'm pretty fiercely against most war and, and in, in Vietnam, I certainly would have. I mean, it was, a, it was uh, one wrong choice after another, but yet at the same time, still feel uncomfortable about somebody skipping out. And I'm thinking, you know, is it cowardice? But ultimately what I really think is I have, you know, this conservative uh, tendency to, to think, you know, like, yes, it was wrong and yes, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not what I would want to do, but if I were drafted, I would, I would oppose the war while at the same time, if I was drafted, I bet I would still go. And it has something, something to do with what Plato, I think is trying to, trying to teach here to, with, uh, with this dialogue with Crito and Socrates. Yeah. We, I mean, we come up in this, this wonderful country and, you know, it, it is wonderful, but partly because of its laws. So, you know, it, it, it sort of presumes we must respect the law. But it, it is tough also because we, because part of this country is also the idea of liberty. And civil disobedience in its place has become also a, a part of our national ethos. Um, you know, going back to the civil rights movement, you know, where there were a lot of unjust laws in place and people resisted them. And now, you know... It, whether whatever people thought at the time, you know, now 50, 60 years later, we say, yeah, they were right to resist those laws. Yeah. But it, 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 it comes back to the exact question, you know, Socrates is, is asking Crito here. Well, how do you know you're right? You know, I mean, how, and if, how do you know your, your opinion is more valid than the opinion of this entire community, which is embodied in its law? You know, how, what gives you the right to say that law is no good? It's like, well, you know, I mean, it, it is it is as absurd to him as, you know, telling your your father that his rules are no good while you live in his house. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this, these are the laws. What are you going to do? It, it's it's t- and a lot of it, I think, is also there's there's arguments, but there's also like you were talking about the way that, that there's a feeling to it, you know feeling to lawlessness that some people don't care at all about breaking the law. Mm-hmm. Others will never do it. And you know, some people will do it if the law seems really bad and things are getting awful. And that's kind of why I hate what 
why that there are so many laws because you know legislators in congress and at the state levels they want to pass a law for everything and and then you know it makes it makes every american a criminal at some point you know it's like there are so many regulations and you're breaking them without even knowing it you know and it it destroys respect for the law Mm -hmm. because if we're always breaking the law you know it's it's like like with traffic laws oh everyone does that you know everyone speeds you know everybody you know with a, a lot of the environmental laws that get so far reaching that every puddle in your backyard becomes a wetland you know it's like, well yeah well i violate that nobody's looking you know but yeah. it, it it gets to the it gets to the point where the law itself is a joke right you know and that that that's kind of what bothers me about the fact that there are so many laws for everything and, um, there's a there's a twitter account called crime a day i think or something like that where they, they highlight something from the u.s code and the code of federal regulations every day that's you know this is a crime and it's usually some insanely minor thing you know and and it um you know if if we make everything along that level then it kind of it, it really tests that obedience to the law that, that you know in socrates day there weren't that many laws you know if he mm-hmm. i mean he was still improperly it was unjustly charged but it wasn't, you know, the su- such few laws as there were, you know, most people respected them because that's, that's okay. And it didn't actually, it, it was easy to live within the law. So mm-hmm. I, that's sort of my thinking in the, the over abundance of, of crimes and laws anymore is that it makes it, it makes the law itself less worthy of respect. And then, it, and that's, that's not a good thing for the country. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more with that. And I think this also plays out with situations where I'll use, for example, President Obama's executive action on on DACA, that that is the children of immigrants who were brought to America when they were a very young age. And I personally tend to think that the the goals of, of the you know DACA uh, administrative action are are positive or good. You know, these kids were brought here at a very young age. They don't know anything about Costa Rica. And we should find a way for them to stay. And, you know, they are Americans, allow them to be Americans. But at the same time, I just so deeply uncomfortable with the, the, the idea that the administra- administration can just decide not to apply certain laws. You yeah. Know? I think this is a conservative temperament. You know, the difference between, okay, I like the, the outcome, but I don't like the process. You know, we're, we're just ignoring law it's a, it's just a, such a massive power grab and it's hard for me to have this this disagreement you know with a, a liberal friends of mine because they're like yeah but you support it like well i i'm happy with the outcome but we have laws for a reason and you don't get to just decide when when you will or will not you know obey them or execute them and just say you know what we're not going to we're not going to enforce that law no no that's not how it works and it's mm-hmm. Especially so it when should the, be struck down. I think. I mean, the, the Supreme Court is going to rule yeah, on I this, think and I will. think it should be struck down. While at the same time, I think that Congress should do something about these kids and you know, give them a life in America. Yeah, I agree with you. Especially the ones who came in when they were very young. You know, when they're you know, some baby coming over the border. But yeah, I mean, when you're the person who's charged in his oath of office with faithfully executing the laws, and your way of doing that is to not execute the laws. Uh, I mean, that how can how can anybody like that? I mean, it's, it seems, 
how can you not see the effects of that? You know, even even people who like the outcome. Yeah, I mean, it's not if if that's allowed, then you know, and this is what I constantly think about during this presidential campaign. You want to give the executive more power to pick and choose what laws he enforces. Well, you're not always going to control the executive. In fact, you don't control him right now. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, it's lawlessness, and that and you know, being against lawlessness is definitely a conservative temperament. Well, so what recourse do you have, you know, when in this conversation between Socrates and Crito? Well, the laws say your dis your decision is between you either need to obey the laws or you need to persuade us to change the laws. So your choice is to persuade or obey. So if you if you don't like the laws, then you need to work to change them. You know, and I think this is a conservative temperament and, and I, I'm pretty close to fully on board with all this that if, if you don't like what the laws that we have then what you need to do is change the law but what you don't get to do is just on your own decide i'm not going to follow or we're not going to execute these laws now i think that critics of this would say well, yeah but we're talking about how, how about the slaves? How about the women? How about the people in the city who weren't aristocrats? Mm. You know, what ability do they have to persuade? You know, they don't have any, any right of revolution. You know, for example, like how, how about the American colonists? Don't we think that they had a right of revolution? You know, when, when, when does the, when do the people ha- have a right to push back that you can drop persuasion and just take that next step? Sure. It's a I difficult that, question. It is. And I think that comes into his, his final point of the sort of love it or leave it point of the law here where he, you know, he tells Crito that, you know, you, I could have left any time like any other Athenian taking my stuff with me, my family. So the fact that I stayed means I accept these laws. And that's, that's a hard argument to counter, especially when it's somebody, a, a person of means in a small country who can leave it, you know, I mean, not everyone can leave the United States. You know, I mean, most of us, you know, it, it's a, it's a big expense. The right to work in another country is not guaranteed if you're not a citizen there. So, you know, I mean, if somebody really hated these laws here, it's not a given that he could leave. But even for people who could, does that mean that you have to accept every law that uh, Congress and your state legislature and your, your city government passes because you didn't leave, so you must like it? Mm-hmm. We talked about Randy Barnett's book back in episode 33, and he got into this in a lot more detail than we're going to do today. So if you're, if you're interested in this point, that's a good episode to, to check out. Again, this is where the idea of natural right is missing, I think, from Socrates' argument. Because it's just the fact you didn't leave doesn't make every action of the government correct. Mm-hmm. Not every law is going to have, the almost no law will have unanimous consent of the people who live there. Yeah. And, you know, even when it's passed, or especially if it's an old law, then, you know, the people who passed it are all dead. The fact that we didn't, you know, all flee the country in rebellion against this law doesn't mean that we all like it. Mm-hmm. So it, it it's, it's complicated. Um, certainly, I mean, certainly coming to a new country shifts that burden a little bit, because then that's really saying, I, I choose this place. You know, I... I if I moved to America, it's because I, I want to live under the, the system that's been built there. Mm-hmm. But even then, that doesn't mean you agree with every paragraph of the United States Code. 
You know? Right, right. And I mean, that would be an absurd thing to ask of anyone. No one's read it all. I mean, even even people who practice law don't know everything that's in there uh, until they accidentally violate it and find themselves in court. So it sounds good, the idea that, you know, you've given implicit consent by not fleeing the jurisdiction, but it's, I think it's more complicated than that. Mm -hmm. So I, I, that argument to me only kind of rings about half true. Yeah, if you weren't, we've had this discussion before in a couple of books with John Locke and, as you said, Randy Barnett. If you were not present at the creation of the government, you know, as Locke would say, coming out of the state of nature together with your fellow humans, your fellow floating individuals, if you didn't come out together, then we're not giving we're not giving actual consent. Instead, it's an argument of tacit consent, and as you mentioned, like Randy Barnett would say, and you should. Listeners, go take a listen to that. I think you'll like it. He says, in the absence of actual consent, the Constitution must provide sufficient procedural assurances to protect rights. And that's basically what his book is about, is going into those uh, natural, inalienable rights that the government needs to protect. You know, Locke would, would say that it was it's really the ownership of property and possessions, you know, mm-hmm. that obliges you to obey the laws. If you own property inside the borders of the city or country, you know, or the polis, then you owe, you have an obligation to obey the laws. And Socrates is just arguing, hey, look, I never left the city except when I, on mil- in military service. You know, I was here for 70 plus years and I never changed my mind. I wasn't c- compelled or to stay or, and I wasn't, he says, or deceived and under no pressure of time for deliberation. Of course, that's funny because he's under a lot of pressure now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but originally he wasn't under that pressure and he could have left at any time. Now, again, like that may or may not be true. I, I, I'm not in, under any pressure to stay living in Fairfax County. You know, I could pick up and leave and go to Maryland or something like that. You know, so there is a difference of scale, that, you know, as far as you don't like America, then leave. Okay, well, where do I go? You know, like mm-hmm. Gabon in Africa. Well, or, you know, it's, it's a little bit different. I think this is why I know this is why we as conservatives another reason a central reason why we care about you know localism and and having a flourishing state and local and community because then it creates options it's not realistic to think that i could pick up and move to nicaragua or something like that yeah that's why after every election nobody moves to canada like they all swore they would yeah yeah it's it's a lot more complicated than that and certainly in athens you know, again, we had women certainly couldn't get up and leave. Slaves couldn't get up and leave. So we're really talking about aristocrats who had the money and had friends in other city states. So there is uh, there is some limits to that. But I, I tend to think there is something to the, the concept of tacit agreement, though. I mean, we are kind of saying, hey, you do this for us and then we'll do this for you. But there is an obligation in return if we just like Locke would argue, you know, you leave the state of nature and make this agreement to form a government, then there is some obligation for us to, I don't know, pay some taxes to, you know, to get along, you know, to work together. And, you know, part of that is going to mean sometimes sacrificing for the whole instead of, you know, only for the individual. So, yeah, where that, where that line is, is again, something 
that comes up a lot in these podcasts is that as a as a non-utopian philosophy, conservatism has a lot of things where you say, well, this much, but not too much. You know, yeah. like you said earlier, like your, your parents can ask you to do a lot of things and you owe them respect, but they can't ask you to go out and go on a crime spree. You know, they, can, they can't ask you to do something unnatural. Uh, but where's that line? You know, that's that's where the sort of Burkean belief in tradition comes in. Is, you know, mm -hmm. we have over the course of hundreds of generations arrived at a pretty reasonable demarcation of, well, this stuff is out of bounds. This stuff is okay. This stuff, little gray area. Maybe, you know, reasonable minds can disagree. But there's no easy answer to that. There's no easy answer mm -hmm. to, you know, with, with taxation. You know, can the state seize all your property? No, that'd be tyranny. Well, can, mm -hmm. they, can they make you pay a couple percent of it every year in property tax? Well, yeah, they can do that. You know, at what point does that percent get to be so big that it's basically you know, destroying the right to property? Well, mm -hmm. people are going to disagree about what that rate would be. You know, and we think about the kind of rates that were that inspired the American Revolution and they're lower than what we pay now. Now, they didn't have representation in Parliament, so that's a, a, also a different question. But it's yeah. but the rates themselves were not ruinous. It was just the fact that they didn't have any way to change the law. Mm -hmm. But this is this is the nature of traditional conservatism is it's uh, it's moderate. And yeah. yeah, what, you know, Crito probably says, well, this is clearly the wrong side of that line. They're putting you to death for a bad reason. Let's let's get out. And uh, Socrates isn't buying it. It puts us as kind of conservatives at a disadvantage, you know, to say, mm -hmm. um, do this, but only, but not so, not too much versus the other side can just say, do the opposite and go as far as you possibly can. You yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you're like, okay, okay, we can, we can do that. You know, it's, it's kind of, for example, you know, you, you mentioned civil disobedience in retrospect, we're looking back saying, you know, that was probably the right thing, but you know, like do some civil disobedience, but not so much. You know, like, right. Not every law, just the really bad ones, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then you get, you know, today people blocking up roads for like climate justice or whatever. Like, well, oh yeah. Well, they, yeah. They don't even, well, what law are you even trying to overturn? You're just making a stink for no reason. Making us angry. You know, <laughs> you're, just, you're just tying everybody's commute up, but they're inspired by those, you know, that, um, those heroes of the civil rights movement who did it for a very good reason. And, you know, but, so it's, yeah, the, you're right. We're at a disadvantage because we're always kind of arguing against ourselves yeah, in a right. way that an absolutist never is, you know, somebody. Well, and we can't decide between ourselves how far this is, is too far, yeah. or how much is too little, you know, too much or too little. Yeah. Yeah. So there's one more, one more argument that, that I just wanted to mention. The last one that he says is basically that the argument from, from bad consequences of escaping. What he says is, Socrates says he, he wouldn't be able to do philosophy if he left Athens. We remember from other Socratic writings that, you know, he says that the, the unexamined life is not worth living. So it's not worth it to him to live if he can't do philosophy, which to us seems kind of extreme. Um, <laughs> yeah. But what, what really struck me about, about this is I, I, what he's kind of saying is I can't be who I can't be me if I'm not with my family and my friends and my community, you know, I'm not me. I'm, I'm something else. I'm someone else. And he's, who I am is shaped by the people that are around me and the people that I'm with and in my community. And outside of that context, I don't know if it's even worth living. He's is, is what he's saying. Cause I can't do philosophy, but I think what he's really saying is I, 
I can't do what I want to do. I, you know, I can't relate the way that I want to relate. And so I would be a different person and, you know, it's starting over. And I, I think there's something to that too, that, you know, I, I think there's, there's lessons there for, you know, not just, let's say, you know, tacit uh, acceptance of laws, but also, you know, other conversations we've had about picking up and moving for a job, you know, like, why don't you leave that small town and go where the jobs are? But as human beings, you know, we, we understand who we are. We have a place, you know, we have a situation. If we're pulled out of that context um, outside, you know, taken from a context of family and friends and community that we know and understand who we are, you know, I think Burke would argue that you've become something different, something else. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's uh, a good point. All right. What, any uh, last comments on Crido? Well, um, this is clearly the oldest thing we've read. And it's, it's, it's interesting to me that we're still having the same discussions uh, 2,400 years later. I think that says something about humanity and that we've started to narrow things down a little, but we're still contending over the same points and questing after the same virtues. And that there's something uh, inspiring about that. Cause it, you know, it's something universal just about how people think, but it, it, it could also be frustrating because you think, well, shouldn't we have figured this out by now? Is yeah, it bad yeah. to disobey the law? Shouldn't we have answered that question yet? But maybe, and maybe it's, uh, maybe it's not going to be answered. Uh, we'll get closer. And I, I think we've done that. And, uh, but, uh, it's, it's good to read these works of the ancients and, uh, see that in many ways they were thinking along the same lines we are today. Yeah. For my final thought, I'll just put in a plug for Plato. His writing is usually pretty clear and not too difficult to understand. And, and he is the great, like Whitehead says that basically all Western philosophy is just a footnote to Plato. And, uh, you know, to your point, he, he picked up on this stuff at a very, you know, very early on. And we're still talking about a lot of it. You know, there's, we're still, you know, tinkering around the edges. A lot of, you know, modern and postmodern philosophy is, is really building on, you know, Platonic thought. It's pretty amazing. So, you know, if, uh, if you're looking for an intro to philosophy, I think Plato's a good one because the translations are usually relatively, you know, relatively easier to read than say, you know, trying to read Sartre or something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's Plato. That's the Crito. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time.